Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to today's scripture reading. It comes from Acts 26, verses 2 through 32, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and, though, and those who journeyed with me. And, we, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that, by being the first to raise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, 
am not out of my mind, though most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's holy word. In A.D. 59, Porcius Festus was appointed by the Romans as governor of the province of Judea. And he moves into his new post. He relieves his previous, his predecessor, Felix. And shortly after Festus takes over as governor in Judea, he receives an important dignitary visit. Uh, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice show up to congratulate him on his promotion. Uh, This is Agrippa II. This is Herod Agrippa II. His sister Bernice and he, these are the children of Agrippa I, whom Luke Luke records Agrippa I's death in Acts chapter 12. Okay, so uh, these two are his children. These are the great grandchildren of Herod the Great, who was reigning in that in that part of the world when Christ was born. Festus inherits when he comes into his new position, a high profile prisoner. Uh, This this Paul, right, is is has been in prison for over two years. Felix. Uh, Felix, the, the, the governor before Festus, leaves Paul in prison for over two years. And Paul's just there waiting. Festus comes in. Festus knows very little about Judaism and the Old Testament, very little about the way Christianity. He doesn't know what to do with this prisoner. Uh, the Romans don't really see any reason for keeping Paul in prison. Uh, they definitely don't see any reason for uh, capital punishment. They're not sure what to do with him. And um, little, let me go back a little bit. The reason Paul is in prison is a couple of years earlier, Paul ended his third missionary journey uh, by going to Jerusalem. He had a financial gift that he had collected from churches in Greece, and he was bringing that gift to the church in Rome, that, uh, uh, sorry, the church in Jerusalem that apparently needed some help. So he came to Jerusalem, hoping eventually to go to Rome a couple of years earlier. Okay? And basically, this, almost days after Paul arrives in Jerusalem with this gift for the church there, uh, there is an, up, an uproar, a mob scene. Um, many people in Jerusalem who were offended by Paul's Christian beliefs and teachings uh, grab a hold of Paul. And begin to persecute him. The Romans, because Paul is a Roman citizen, this came in handy for Paul more than once uh, during his days. 
Uh, because Paul was a Roman citizen, the Romans in Jerusalem uh, basically apprehend him as their own prisoner in order to protect his life. Uh, because the violence uh, was so severe against him in Jerusalem when he got there that they were just trying to keep him alive. Um, he goes into Felix's care, and Felix just leaves him in prison for over two years. Uh, as a favor to the local Jewish establishment uh, that was offended at Paul, Felix leaves Paul in prison. He goes away. Festus comes. Festus really doesn't understand why Paul's in prison, doesn't know what to do about it. During the process, Paul used his right, his ancient right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to Caesar. So Paul, by right of his citizenship, citizenship is now bound for Rome at some point. But Festus doesn't understand the charges against him. Festus doesn't understand the debate between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Christian Paul. He doesn't know what to write to Caesar when he sends Paul to Caesar, he better have something in the right if, if he's going to send this appeal over to Caesar. Right? So he takes advantage of the fact that King Agrippa, who is part Jewish, visits him to congratulate him on his new promotion. Agrippa was basically devout in, in following uh, the ceremonies and festivals of the Jews. He knew a lot about Judaism and the Old Testament and the prophets. He knew a good deal about the way, about Christianity. It had developed publicly in his region. So Festus is hoping that Agrippa's take on Paul's case will give him something to report to Caesar before he sends Paul off to Rome. So Paul now, after decades of ministry, all over that part of the world, is on his biggest stage. Paul is now standing before a governor and a king and a princess. And he communicates the Christian message to them. This is, this is probably the biggest stage yet, even bigger than the Areopagus in Athens. And here's, here's the moment for Christianity and the gospel. And, and here's Paul's greatest opportunity. Now, let's not forget that Paul's in chains. What afforded Paul his biggest break, if you want to put it in, in our terms today, what afforded Paul his biggest break in communicating this message was the fact that he was in chains as a prisoner. Your adversity provides opportunities to share Jesus with other people. If you're not a Christian, your adversity is probably the very thing that God intends to use to draw you close to his son, Jesus. And today I really want to address how God provides opportunities through our struggles and through our adversities. I want to talk about the opportunities that God does provide. I want to talk about the way that he provides them. And I want to talk about why, the reason why he does it that way, the reason why God uses adversity to provide us with opportunities to draw close to him and to share his truth and his blessing with others. Now, the, the, the opportunities that you get, despite your, your efforts in, in your life and, and despite what appears to simply be chance or randomness, the opportunities that you get are very much by God's design. God's working behind the scenes and he's probably been working for your entire life. 
to get you to the point where you are, where you have some type of an opportunity, you have some type of an open door. Decades earlier, when Paul became a Christian and Ananias in Damascus discipled him. And Ananias was not sure because Paul had a pretty bad reputation. <laughs> but the Lord Jesus said to Ananias, Ananias about Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Acts chapter 9. Paul knew that he was a gifted man. Paul knew that he was intelligent. Paul knew that he had always worked hard. Paul knew that he had been faithful, as he said to the elders um, of Ephesus at the end of his third missionary journey. But more important than any of that, Paul knew that he was called by God. That's the key. That's the story behind the story with Paul. Regardless of all his strengths and how hard he had worked to get to this point before the king and the princess and the governor, Paul knew that he was called by God. And and now he offers his defense. He offers his defense against the charges uh, that were laid against him by the Jewish religious senate in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. But in a a way, it's not simply a legal defense. It's it's a personal testimony. He's talking about he's he's arguing and he's making a case for why he had become a Christian and why he remained a Christian. Now, he starts in verse 2 by saying to Agrippa, uh, and it's not an official trial, it's a, cer- it's a ceremonial thing. The king shows up and wants to hear this guy talk and, and so now he's listening and there's all this pomp and ceremony and, and they, you know, Bernice and Agrippa come into Festus's court. There's all this pomp and circumstance and here's Paul, this little guy in chains. And he presents his case and he starts in verse 2 of chapter 26 by saying, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. Now, I've thought about this as an aside Um, I want to bring something up. I really feel like after several months of working through Acts, a year after we spent several months in the Gospel of Mark, I need to say something about anti-Semitism. Secular critics for a long time have accused the New Testament of being anti-Semitic because of phrases like this, uh, making his case against the Jews. We see that phrase a lot in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. The Jews, the Jews, the Jews. And often when that phrase comes up, uh, it's usually in a negative or adversarial sense, like the Jews against Paul, the Jews against Peter, the Jews against Jesus. What's going on there? Um, It's not anti-Semitic at all. Uh, The New Testament is not anti-Jewish. Here's what's going on there. First of all, the New Testament was written by Jews. Except for Luke, everybody who wrote the New Testament was Jewish. Uh, They weren't against themselves. When the phrase the Jews comes up like this in the New Testament, it usually refers to one of two things. Either the Jews in general who rejected the message of Christianity or specifically the Jewish religious establishment, the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish the leadership of the synagogues in different cities and towns who were openly opposed to Christians, who were against their message and in certain ways uh, oppressed them politically and socially. Uh, that's what the phrase the Jews refers to in the New Testament. 
I think, I think what happened over recent, the, the last couple of hundred years, um, is that uh, criti- uh, skeptics, critical skeptics of the Bible, have read into the New Testament centuries of anti-Semitism in our culture. Uh, which is unfortunate and shameful, especially when churches and Christians have allowed it to continue and even have participated in it. I just thought that was important to say because it's all over the book of Acts. And I was like, well, this is my last chance because we're almost done with the book of Acts. So I'll just say it right there. Paul loves his countrymen, uh, but he has to make a case in defending his faith against the religious establishment uh, that was not only violently opposed to him, but wanted him dead. So Paul's defense is a rich, helpful showcase of Christian witness. If, if, if you're a Christian and you really want a great example of how to communicate your faith in an effective, honest, fresh, helpful way, this is it. I want to mention five qualities that we see in Paul's address to Agrippa that I think are helpful for us in all of our relationships with people. The first thing we see is is that Paul's testimony to Agrippa is Christ-centered. He's talking about Jesus. At the heart of what he's saying is Jesus, Jesus was a person. He died on a Roman cross and he rose from the dead. That's at the center of everything Paul's saying, or it's not the Christian message. But he's also culturally sensitive about how he says it. Because Agrippa is part Jewish, and he knows a lot about Judaism and the Old Testament prophets, and Paul talks to him that way. Paul says, hey, everything I believe and everything I'm saying is simply the fulfillment of what the prophets have been saying all along. We've been hearing Paul talk to Gentiles and and pagans throughout the ancient uh, Mediterranean world. Paul doesn't talk to Agrippa that way. He knows his audience. He knows who he's talking to, and he addresses him appropriately. But Paul's message is also personal. He vividly demonstrates what he was like before he became a Christian and what he's like now after he became a Christian. Okay? Not only is it personal, it's not just personal and subjective, but it's rational. There's a amount of objectivity to what Paul's saying. Now, when, when Festus says, Paul, you're nuts, you are out of your mind. Festus, in the original language, he's basically saying, you're manic. <laughs> you're in a manic episode. You're a maniac. Paul said, I'm really not. And he lays out quite rationally and reasonably why he's not insane. How many, how many of you as a Christian are, are thought to be in your society nuts for what you believe? Paul points out, quite simply, he's not crazy. He hasn't lost his mind. And quite simply and reasonably, he makes his case. And he defends his position. Not only is he rational in his approach to Christianity, he's responsive. Meaning, the gospel itself demands a response. If you hear the gospel, it demands something of you. You don't just walk away in a neutral state of mind. You either embrace it or you reject it. And holding off on it is still a form of of rejecting it. Paul points out the two responses that we see in the New Testament to the message of Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance. Both faith and repentance are mentioned and required in Paul's testimony. He invites both of them. Regarding faith, what does he say in verse 29? Uh, He says, I would to God that not only you... 
He's talking to Agrippa. Not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He also mentions in verse 20, he talks about repentance. He says everybody that he's talked to, Gentiles, Jews, wherever they were, he says he, he preached to them that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul's message of Christianity is responsive. It invites faith and repentance for those who hear it. So Paul responds to this opportunity like he responded to the many opportunities that God had designed for him. He responds to it faithfully and humbly and intelligently. And I think if you're a Christian, that's, we should pray that we can respond to questions or criticisms or, or interest in our Christianity faithfully, humbly, and intelligently. But it's quite often that these open doors... Okay. These open doors for Christian witness, for Christian testimony, they really, they often come by the way of your suffering. You may have already noticed that, or you will someday. That sometimes the most obviously open doors before you come not at moments of tranquility and peace and relaxation, but in moments of intensity, trials by fire. Quite often, these are when God opens doors for his servants and his people to talk about Jesus. The way that God provides these opportunities is often through your adversity. I hope you will recognize that. I want to bring up that passage again from Acts chapter 9. When Jesus said to the reluctant Ananias, Paul's okay. Paul's with me now. You can minister to him. You can befriend him. To quote what I said earlier, Jesus said to Ananias, Paul's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But Jesus went on to say to Ananias, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. At the end, when Paul was escorted away, maybe back to the barracks. Agrippa and Festus are, you know, conversing offline. And Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Because they saw that he wasn't really guilty of anything he was being accused of. And, you know, it's at that point, you know, if we're, watch, if we're listening to this as though we're watching a movie, you know, we're following a plot and, and we want to make sure that, that, that the protagonist, that the hero gets out of, out of danger safely. It's, it's at this moment that we go, oh, why did he have to appeal to Caesar? They would have let him go. He would have been free. To what? To more mob hostility? To more persecution and false accusations and imprisonment and maybe his own death? Right? Free from what? He'd just be back into the same old routine. And, and that's just the point. Rather than escape his circumstances, what did he do? He utilized them. He, he, he utilizes his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar, which allows him to remain in custody, out of harm's way, although he's in change, in chains, he's out of harm's way. He's away from those who would want to destroy him and been plotting against his life. 
And he knows he's got a one-way ticket to Rome itself, which is exactly where the Lord Jesus had been telling him for years he needed to go. Quite often, people escape, try and escape their predicaments, but, but Paul utilizes them. If you're a novice with suffering and adversity, because we all are at some point in our life, and, and whether you start as, as a child or a young adult or later in your life, at some point, you cease to be a novice at suffering and adversity. Okay, but, but novices, we, novices usually try and wiggle their way out of suffering. I did, you know, facing loss and cancer and lawsuits and discouragement and depression. I just tried to wiggle my way out of all of it as a young man. What happens as you become a veteran with suffering is you realize that you can't always wiggle your way out of it. And you begin to realize that you can learn from it while you're in it. And you, can be, you begin to utilize your suffering to mature, to actually become the person that you've been designed to be. Americans too often buy the lie that a good life is a life free of trials and setbacks and losses. We, we have advantage, advantages of modern technology and medicine. We live in a society where on either side of us, geographically, we, we are surrounded by thousands of miles of ocean. Right? And, and, and the corporate mindset of, of Americans is we are isolated from the problems of the world. We have oceans all around us. And what they're facing in other places, we don't have to directly deal with right here. And I know social media and globalization and the internet is changing all of that. But it's still our mentality that we are somehow separate from the world's problems. And so, you know, we, we, um, we, we pout when we actually realize that we're stuck in our adversity and we can't wiggle our way out of it, we pout. And we complain and, and, and that sometimes we, we even rage because we are struggling. But man, what if, what if American Christians could actually see our trials as opportunities? Not simply as obstacles and unwanted circumstances and mistakes, but what if we could see our adversity as opportunity to shine like stars in a dark world? What if we just flipped it around and changed our perspective? Because quite often what we say is, suffering, this is not me. You know, I've lost my job. This is not who I am. Or, I'm struggling with a disease or with depression. This is not who I am. Or those people have, have maligned me and slandered me or disregarded me. That's not who I am. But you know what? <laughs> the real you is, is just waiting to rise out of your suffering. So you want to get out of your trials because you think that's not who you are. I think the real you is right in there waiting to rise up as though from the dead to become who you truly are as a result of how you struggle and how you get through that struggle with the help of God. Stop trying to close the very doors that God is opening in your life. And start to see your trials as opportunities to share your faith, to express your faith. And in order to walk through a door like that, you've got to kill your pride. Pride is what holds you 
away. Pride is what's keeping you from going through the threshold. There's two instances in Acts chapter 26 that really showcase what it looks like to approach Christianity with pride. Festus and Agrippa. So Festus has finally had enough, and, and he yells out to Paul, you're out of your mind. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. James Boyce called that a pride of intellect. He thought that the gospel, the Christian message that Paul was explaining was just below him. Didn't make sense to him. It was offensive to him. It confounded and perplexed him. And he had had enough. Now, Agrippa, on the other hand, didn't have that problem. You get the sense that Agrippa knows what Paul's talking about. Agrippa gets it. Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? See, Agrippa, James Boyce said, his pride was one of position. As the king being addressed so intimately and directly in a court was unbecoming. Uh, He was put on the spot by Paul in front of others. Agrippa knew what Paul was saying, but... He thought embracing it was was just beneath his position in life. One ruler was offended by the gospel. The other ruler was embarrassed by it. And you know, if you're not a Christian or if you're struggling with Christianity and you have doubts and concerns, sometimes people, um, they're intrigued by the gospel message of Jesus and um, they even admire Jesus and some of the things that he said and done. But they still resist it by saying, you know, when I'm older and I've had my fun and I've enjoyed myself, then I'll embrace this this message. Or um, when I'm really in a bind and I'm really struggling, I'll call out. I'll call to God then. I'm okay right now. I'm fine. When I'm really hurting, I'll I'll start praying then. I'll I'll find a thanks for the Bible. I'm just going to put it down here, you know, under the newspapers. But when I'm struggling, I'll find it again. you know, for a later day or for a difficult time. You know, but I would, I would suggest you also, friend, are blind to the fact that there's an open door right before you. That maybe God is opening a door for you to embrace him for the first time. For you to truly, finally trust him and stop trusting in yourself. Paul said in another place, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait for some tragedy or for some trial. Don't wait for you to be more mature or bored to really get serious about embracing Jesus. Don't wait. Embrace him now. You know, the world only remembers Bernice and Agrippa and Festus because they happened to be among the Apostle Paul's audience at one point when he was in change. Nobody remembers them. They remember Paul. They remember Paul's message. I would consider that. Don't forget what Paul's saying. But if you're a Christian, I don't want to let you off the hook either. Um, I think for Christians, we wait for comfortable circumstances before we get serious about our faith. Before we really open ourselves up to God using us, we say, well, when I'm making more money or... I'm not as busy, or the kids are older, or I'm not sick, yada, yada, yada. Then I'll let God use me. Then I'll open myself up to other people. 
man, if, if Paul took opportunities when he was in chains, I don't really know what you're waiting for. God can use you right now in the most difficult of circumstances. Adversity is a showcase. Do you not see that with Paul's witness chapter after chapter? Do you not see that your adversity is a, cho- is a showcase to your friends and relatives and coworkers in the world? Because it's in your adversity, it is when you are pressed that people begin to notice how you deal with it. The decisions you make, the responses you offer verbally, the way you act when you're under pressure. That's what people notice. They're not paying attention to you when you're doing okay. And how many of us are really ever always doing okay. Unbelievers might think that Christianity is below them, but if you're a Christian, be careful. Do not think that your adversity is below you. That's pride. The very reason why God uses our adversities as open doors and opportunities is precisely to kill our pride because he knows we are prideful people. Unless we suffer adversity, we will never humble ourselves as Christians to share the gospel. And unless people struggle through adversity, they will never humble themselves to receive it and believe it and trust Jesus. Mark chapter 10 records something that Jesus said in the midst of people misunderstanding what salvation was all about, what being right with God was all about. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus didn't mean you've got to become a fool again to get to heaven. You've got to disconnect your brain for God to forgive you. You've got to become unscientific. You've got to become undiscerning. Like a child, you've got to be unseen or unheard. Jesus didn't mean any of that. What Jesus meant was to receive the kingdom of heaven, to be embraced by your creator, you have to become dependent. You've got to stop your campaign to be an independent person. You've you've got to take on the essence of being reborn, of becoming new again. You've got to stop acting like You don't need a heavenly father and embrace the fact that (laughs) you need God's care in a life and a world of adversity. Jesus is saying, unless you get that, the kingdom of heaven will remain far from you. But it belongs to those who approach him as little children. And didn't Jesus do exactly that? Didn't he approach us as a little child, vulnerable? He made himself vulnerable. The creator of the universe who needed nothing made himself vulnerable because we were too prideful to, do, to, to make ourselves vulnerable. So he humbled himself and became vulnerable and died on a cross and rose from the dead so that we might trust his father. And it's in that, it's, it's in understanding that, that you'll be able to finally say, oh, God went through adversity to draw me close to him. Now I can endure adversity. I can now, I can, I can endure adversity to highlight his impact in my life. I can endure adversity 
to draw close to him and to become like him. Would you consider that this week? That it's your adversity quite often that provides some of the most salient opportunities for you as a Christian to share your faith? Or consider this if you're not a Christian or you're really doubting and struggling with Christianity. Consider that your struggles are the open doors that God is providing for you to finally trust his son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the testimony of your saints throughout the centuries. We praise you for the Apostle Paul. We praise you that he remained faithful, uh, that he shared the same message with kings and governors, that he shared with peasants and business owners and soldiers and prostitutes. Uh, The same message that Jesus saves in Jesus alone. Uh, Lord, help us likewise to humble ourselves, to kill the pride that is in us and become, in Jesus' words, like little children who finally trust you. Thank you. Amen.